0: grab a scene as you do get a Bible in front of you, Genesis chapter 29, Genesis 29. And uh, as you turn there, let me just ask you this question. Do you know what it feels like to meet your match? Uh, I'm asking that not in the sense of dating or marriage, but I'm asking it in the sense of uh, the expression that we'll use often. Hey, that person just met their match. Uh, Often it's said when You're really good at something, you really excel at something, maybe growing up for you that was a sport or or something else, and uh, you're so good at it that you're used to not having any competition in it, and then one day you come up to someone who's as good or better than you are, and everyone watching goes, okay, they just met their match. Uh, We're uh, entering a, a, a part of Genesis and a part of the life of Jacob in which he is going to meet his match. And it's uh, and, and not such a redemptive uh, topic or category in which we're going to watch these uh, two men battle it out. But Jacob, through, uh, throughout his life, has uh, been known to, to manipulate some things, to scheme some things, to be deceptive. There's uh, things that trace all the way back to even his birth and how he was named that uh, clue us into this. Well, uh, this week we're going to watch, he's going to meet his match of someone who's able to scheme right with him to deceive right with him, to manipulate some things right with him, and he meets his match in the form of Uncle Laban. And um, we come now to this, uh, the, the, what I'm calling this next section of Genesis, the battle of the schemers, and we're going to see some things here. Uh, we're going to see a, a section I'm calling the sister wives. You probably have questions about that if you're newer to the Bible. We're going to see a section I'm calling the Birthing Wars. You probably have questions about that. The Growing Flocks, the Quiet Fleeing. Everything coming up in Genesis in these next couple of chapters all revolve around these two guys trying to outduel each other in manipulating and scheming and trying to get the upper hand. Now, if if you think I've been hard on Jacob up to this point, because Jacob is one of the patriarchs, in fact, Jacob's name's going to be changed to Israel, and God is going to use this man in a great way. I just want to acknowledge that there's, there's things that in Jacob's life that God must redeem, that God has to work through, that God has to help him overcome, and especially this a tendency he has to sin in manipulating and scheming and in deceiving his way to the upper hand. God is going to use the encounters with Laban, I believe, to help Jacob see some of this and grow some of this. Why does God allow Jacob to come toe-to-toe with Uncle Laban? A couple things I'll say on that. One, I think it's a humbling experience for Jacob. Two, I think Jacob's going to get stung here. And I think there's times in life where God will allow some redemptive stinging in order to uh, grow us, in order to shape us, in order to mold us. And then I think God's bringing Jacob toe-to-toe with Laban so that Jacob might see the ugliness hidden in Laban's heart and let it serve as a redemptive mirror to see that same kind of ugliness in his own heart. So just a spoiler spoiler alert of where we're going later in the message. Uh, Sometimes the people that we struggle with the most, that we have the greatest rubs with, that we have the greatest relational strife with, we often think it's because we're so unlike them. Often we find out as we grow up, right, it's because we're so much like them. And so that's convicting, and you just wanna pack it up now and head for the door. I'm just warning you more on that to come. The sin I see in others might be God's gracious mirror to reveal that same thing in me. Jacob's gonna have this experience with his uncle over these next coming years of his life and i think god might have something to teach us as we study it together so let me pray and then let's get into his word father we need your help now lord we say that every single week but as we come to your word as we seek to understand it and then apply it we know that we're dependent on your spirit to give us ears to hear and give us eyes to see and we know we're dependent on your spirit to give us the courage to go out and obey and be doers of the word that we're studying here today. So God, help us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, picking it up in Genesis 29, remember where we left off? Jacob's just had this unbelievable encounter with the Lord in which he had left his father's house. He's on the way to Padan Aram uh, uh, and uh, he uh, stops just north of where he's left. He goes to sleep. He has this dream in which he sees in the dream a ladder to heaven, angels ascending and descending. And the centerpiece of this dream is that Yahweh, God, the Lord, is standing at the top of the ladder. And the Lord speaks these promises of Abraham to Jacob. He promises him that he will grow to become a great nation, that he will possess this land, that God himself will go with him, and that God will not leave him until all of these things have been accomplished. And you pick it up here as uh, Jacob continues his journey. It says, then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field. If you remember from a couple of weeks ago where there's a well, there's a where there's a well, there's a wife. He saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We're from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, is it, it is, is it well with him? They said, it is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. And so we're letting a little kind of local shepherding customs here. Uh, Jacob's like, I, I think it's funny. Jacob comes on the scene and kind of starts bossing them around of how they should shepherd their sheep. He says, what are you doing waiting around for water? It's time for them to be out eating. And he goes, no, no, no. We don't, we don't water until all the flocks are here. Then we roll the stone away all at once. We water all the sheep and then back out to pasture they go. And they're waiting. And it's, it, it seems they're waiting for Rachel, who's coming now in the distance to come water the flocks. Verse 9. While he was still speaking with them, Jacob still speaking with the shepherds, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Show off here, right? I mean, we're told a large stone is covering the well, and uh, as Rachel comes closer, Jacob's like, boys, I got this. And he goes beast mode on the rock to move it, you know, moves it all by himself. And then he gets kind of even more bold here. Verse 11 Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. And so Rachel walks out. She thinks she's just just like any other day. She's just coming to water the flocks, and she gets there, and there's this, this guy from a foreign land. He rolls the stone away. He runs up. He kisses her. He's weeping. He tells her who he is, and she's off back to Dad's house going, one of our relatives is here. Verse 13, as soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, He ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him how long? I want you to keep notes uh, as we're in this section of the life of Jacob at time markers. How long are things happening? And we try to say this a lot, but when we study our Bibles, often when we flip a page, it's it's just a flip of a page or three minutes of our reading, but it's years. And so we get a time marker here that Jacob comes into Laban's household and he's now been staying with him a month. That month is going to turn into a much longer time as we're about to see, verse 15. Then Laban said to Jacob, because you are my kinsman." Should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me what shall your wages be. When's the last time your employers come and ask you that? How much you want? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. That's an interesting follow-up statement. How much do you want to make? How much do you want to get paid? Next statement. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Okay, that should kind of clue us off again of something here. We have an older younger sis, uh, older younger sibling dynamic. We're just coming out of a very intense scene of an older younger sibling dynamic. Esau and Jacob. And everywhere, typically almost everywhere, the Bible talks about Esau and Jacob. It always kind of sets them over and apart of each other, opposite of each other. Now we're introduced to another older, younger sibling dynamic. The older sister is Leah. The younger sister is Rachel. And now the Bible, now God wants to help us understand a bit more of these two sisters. Leah's eyes were weak. Some of your Bibles might say soft. Leah's eyes were weak. There's something to that description. And okay, look, what does that really mean? What's it mean Leah had soft eyes or weak eyes? Maybe reading about Rachel will help us understand what it's trying to say about Leah. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And so we're told something about just the the appearance of these two sisters, And it seems the Bible wants us to understand that uh, Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Leah, it would have been less likely that people would have described her like that. Jacob, verse 18, loved who? Jacob loved Rachel. And he said... I will serve you. Now he's talking back to Laban. I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And so let's put that into some historical, cultural context here. That's probably about double um, what a typical dowry price would have been for a bride. Uh, Jacob's going to work double what someone would have normally paid for a bride. Jacob is like, I'm, I want to pay a premium for the bride price for your younger daughter, Rachel. I'll serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Verse 19, Laban said, it's better that I give her to you than I should give, uh, uh, than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served Seven years, one of the most romantic lines in all the Bible coming. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. That's precious, (laughs) it's precious. Time flies when you're working for the love of your life. Seven years, okay, so, so the deal should be clear. The deal should be clear to us. The deal should be clear to Jacob. The deal should be clear to Laban. Okay, I've been with you a month. You came and said, hey, if you're gonna be around here, like let me pay you for your work. And you like, we talked about, okay, I'm gonna work here seven years. You don't have to pay me a dime, but at the end of the seven years, I would love your younger daughter, Rachel,'s hand in marriage. Laban replies, Hey, better that you marry him than some other guy. It's a deal. Should be clear. Verse 21. Then Jacob said to Laban, so we're now like seven years into this, or seven years later. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. It's time for the wedding, it's time to celebrate. Verse 23 But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. The schemer got schemed. Jacob just got had. He just got worked. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. That might be uh, a kind of a, 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 an afterthought in a Bible or in these things. What are these things called? Parentheses. Thank you. <laughs> when I do this, you say the word, okay? <laughs> Parentheses. Uh, those parenthetical notes are going to be important in the time to come. But I just want to stop here and I want to ask, what? What would that have been like for Jacob? To work seven years for this woman that you love, who the agreement was I mean, the agreement was in place to have the celebration, the wedding celebration, and to wake up the next morning. And find her sister laying there, and in the morning, verse twenty-five. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. Translation: In the morning, ah. <laughs> what is up with this? You know, so often as people study this story in the Bible, people get so hung up on like, how did that happen? How does that work? I don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. Honestly, this is just my guess to you. A combination of a veil, darkness, and wine (laughs) is how that happens. (laughs) Jacob goes to bed that night thinking he's just married the love of his life. He wakes up the next morning and her sister is laying beside him. Jacob wants a word with his (laughs) father-in-law. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Rachel! Rachel! Why then have you, what's he say? Why then have you? And at that moment, something should trigger in Jacob's mind, oh... This is what it's like to be on the other end. Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, that's not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. you want the other sister too? Here's the deal. Complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Laban just conned him. You want the younger one now? All right. See the week through, the customary week to celebrate the wedding with the older, with Leah. You want Rachel? You can have her at the end of the week, but here's the deal. You're with me another seven years. It's another seven years of work. Jacob did so, verse 28, and completed her week, completed Leah's week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Another parenthetical that's important. Laban, Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. In one week, Jacob goes from zero wives to two wives. Oh, and their sisters. Oh, and one's loved and one's not. This should go great. <laughs> now, when you see in the Bible, uh, you know, a pastor stands up and goes, you know, one of the patriarchs of the faith goes from zero to two wives in one week. Um, this is this is not part of the message. It's an aside in the message that I think we have to address. What do you do with polygamy in the Bible? No, really, if anyone would love to come. and, (laughs) What do you do with polygamy in the Bible? Here's what I would just say about that real quick as just an aside that I think is important so that we know we can trust the Word of God as it's given, the historicity of it, the reliability of it, the faithfulness of it. We have to understand that the Bible often describes the state of fallen cultures, The Bible will describe the state, what's going on, the events of fallen culture. In fact, it's the very essence of the Bible, out of like all of the historical or all of the religious literature of any of the faiths or the religions, has no problem just saying, and here's here's the bare truth. Here's the facts. Here's what happened. The Bible doesn't cloud that. The Bible will just lay before you the state, the events, what happens in fallen culture. But here's what we do see. The Bible never condones this as a proper or right measure. As the Bible describes the state of fallen culture, it's never condoning the state of fallen culture. So we never see in the Bible the condoning of polygamy. In fact, everywhere we see it appear in the Bible, here's what we see with it. Pain, trial, hardship, chaos, absolute dysfunction and mess. And it's because the Lord is reiterating as he shows us, look at where cultures have gone wrong. Look at where people have gone wrong before. The Lord is reiterating and double down from, from cover to cover that marriage as God intended it was always to be one man and one woman for life until death does them part. And the Lord, again, will say here, if you want to try that any other way, it'll just bring pain, hardship, chaos, and dysfunction. And listen, things are about to get messy. So Jacob had pulled off some pretty good schemes and pretty good deceptions in his past, but uh, he just went toe-to-toe with Laban, and he just met his match. And so, my question, and it's a question I asked at the outset, I want to ask again why does God allow this? Why, do, why does God allow Jacob to come toe to toe with Laban? As Jacob said in his own words, why then have you deceived me? Why might God allow that to happen to Jacob? I'm not saying God caused it, I'm not saying God's behind the sin. I'm just saying, how might God be at work in the heart of Jacob, having just experienced what he had been inflicting on others? Hopefully for Jacob, it'll be a humbling. Hopefully for Jacob, it'll be be the beginning of breaking him, to not trust in himself and his scheming ways. Hopefully it will sting him with a redemptive sting. Hopefully, it'll humble him and will drain him of this self dependence so that he will now, moving forward, rely on the Lord. And here's one that I think is important for us today. Hopefully, in coming face to face with the ugliness of what he has just walked through and what he has seen in the life of Laban, his eyes will be open to go, oh. What if that same ugliness is present in my heart as well? It's that little line I read to us at the beginning, uh, that uh, the sin I see in others might be God's gracious mirror to reveal that same thing in me. We hear it often in parenting, right? Right? if you have any sort of like rub or recurring conflicts with like one of our children, often we realize over time, oh, it's not because they're so unlike me, it's because we're so much alike. God, it took about two and a half decades for me to begin to understand how this works. Um, And just kind of to be transparent, um, my tendency, like apart from Jesus and when I'm still at my worst, even in Christ and with the Spirit inside of me, is to be a very arrogant person. And some of you are like, I could have told you that, right? And um, I've learned through the years how to, how to walk with a quiet arrogance. And it was about my mid-20s when I began to reflect on, on different environments, whether they were teams I, were on, I was on growing up or in school or in the workplace at that time for a few years. I began to notice that I always had a rub, like if I was gonna have a relational rub with someone, it was someone that I perceived to be arrogant. And so I could look back at like the teams I was on, classes I was in, I'd be like, man, like I just didn't like that guy. I just like, ugh, I didn't. And for about two and a half decades of my life, I thought that was because I was so unlike them. And then about my mid-twenties, God began to open my eyes to reveal the arrogance of my heart, and I realized all of those relational rubs were actually because I was so much like them. And it's easy for us to read Genesis 29 and to go, look at the similar ways Laban and Jacob, had. like these two are kind of two peas in a pod. But my guess would be, Jacob would go, I'm not like that. And Laban would go, I'm not like that. And there's times in our life where we come toe-to-toe with someone. And we see the sin, and we see it in all its ugliness, and we see the mess. And the Lord in his grace, and y'all, it's grace. It's a good thing. He has to lift the scales from our eyes, and we go, no. I'm just like that. And I think if Jacob will humble himself, part of the encounter with Laban is setting Jacob up for a wrestling match with God that's about to happen, in which God is using Laban to begin to break Jacob of this ugliness that we see going on in his heart. Now some of you, the Holy Spirit might be working, you're like, no, there's no way I'm like them. No, there's no way that some of that relational rub with that person or some of that conflict with that person is stemming because we might have some of the sim- similar sa- sin struggles going on. Now, I just say to you, it's not always the case. Sometimes there's conflict not, just because of other people's sin. And sometimes we are just the victim of other people's sin. But sometimes the conflict stems that we are not so unlike each other, but we are so like each other. And so this is a mess. One week, two wives, sisters, one loved, one unloved. And it's only about to get a whole lot messier. Verse 31 moves us into that next scene here that I'm calling the birthing wars. And I'm not going to read it all, but I want you to see what it says in verse 31. When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So in one week, you went to two wives, they were sisters, one's loved, one's not loved. The one that's not loved can now have kids, the one that's loved can't. Verse 31 begins a whole section that runs all the way up to chapter 30, verse 24, in which we find out how Jacob's 12 sons are born. It's pretty messy. 12 sons from four women. Four? You're like, four women? Remember those parentheses? Let's unpack it. Here's how the 12 tribes of Israel come to be. Leah is able to have kids. She has four sons right away. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Rachel sees, I can't have kids. And so Jacob, here's my maidservant. You um, try to have kids with her. So Bilhah has Dan and Naphtali. Leah sees, I've stopped having kids. Rachel gave Jacob, her maidservant. Maybe I'll give Jacob my maidservant. And so Jacob has with Zilpah, Gad, and Asher. Then Leah can start having sons again. So she has a few more, Issachar and Zebulun. And then finally, Rachel will have two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. Behold the beginning of the 12 tribes of Israel. Y'all, this is crazy. And this is dysfunctional. And this is brokenness like at its ugliest. And there's a lot of chaos in this. But here's what I'll tell you. Our good and gracious God intervenes in the midst of this brokenness and chaos in the midst of a guy who up to this point has just been a schemer and manipulator and deceiver, in the midst of a situation in which you have two wives who are sisters, one loved, one not, and God enters into the brokenness of it, And from this dysfunctional family thing we just read, will grow to become the 12 tribes of Israel of the people of the living God. And this unloved woman would have a son number four named Judah. And in a few chapters, you're gonna see Judah's got some unredemptive stuff in his story. And from that fourth son of an unloved wife of a man who will do some shameful things will come who's called the lion of the tribe of Judah. The Messiah. And if you flip to the very first page of the New Testament, you don't need to do it. You'll read about a genealogy of this Messiah. And the Bible doesn't hide that there's dysfunction in that line. There's sexual immorality in that line. There's ugliness and chaos and dysfunction in that line. And that genealogy will culminate in the birth of Jesus of Nazareth in a town of Bethlehem, who is walking into this world to save deeply dysfunctional, broken, people and so if you think your life's jacked up let me tell you something it probably is (laughs) And it's why this Messiah came from a line of broken dysfunction to be a perfect savior. He had no dysfunction, he had no mess, he had no sin, he had no brokenness, and then he went to a tree, he went to a cross, and as his blood ran down that cross, he's bleeding for our brokenness. And then he invites broken people to him by faith by faith you don't have to earn it you don't have to work for it you say in this church service here today lord jesus i believe i want you i want you as lord i want you as master we're invited to him and then he takes broken dysfunctional messy chaotic people and he does big and bold and beautiful things like the 12 tribes Of Israel, like the lion of the tribe of Judah coming out of it, he takes dysfunctional messes and he uses them for beautifully redemptive things. And the only way it happens is because his body was broken and his blood was shed. God's word calls us as God's people to have a regular time to remember Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross. It's something that the church is to institute and to do on a regular basis. He wants us to gaze back again and again at what sin, our sin and the sin of the world, cost his son. The Bible tells us that we're not to enter this time lightly. We're not to just speed through this so that we can get on to the other things of our day. The Bible tells us that there's a way we approach the communion table where we examine our hearts. What sin and dysfunction and mess do you just need to lay before him today? And then in that time of examining, where do you just need to say, Lord, thank you that you love a dysfunctional being like me, and you invite me to be a part of the story you're writing in redemptive history, and that you don't leave me in my dysfunctional place. So why don't we just take a few moments to examine our hearts, then I'll lead us through the taking of the elements here in a moment.